Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for a little Life Over Coffee. I had a supporting member write in. They are working with a teenager who is struggling with a porn problem. It just came out. And he asked me several questions, and I'm going to read to you what he sent in to me. And then I want to spend this entire episode walking through it. What I want to present to you is a template for how to help any person who is struggling with a problem. And so maybe you're not helping someone working through a porn addiction. That's fine. What I'm going to share with you, it has broad application. And so I'm going to give you a template that you can walk through to deal with any person who is looking for help with a problem, an addiction, a sin issue in their life. Now, I'm going to use pornography as a case study, and maybe that's the best way to think about what I'm going to present to you. And so I will be answering his questions specifically, but I'll also be using the porn addiction as a case study for everybody else so that when you are working through a personal struggle, a habit that you have, or if someone is seeking you out for help, this particular episode will be outstanding for you. And so this is episode 439. Now the title of it is How to Help a Teen with a Porn Problem. And so that is the real issue, but that's also the case study that's going to form a template that will help you, assist you, as you work with anyone who is struggling with any kind of an addiction. And so this is what our supporting member wrote, wrote in. He was, he was wanting help uh, for a teen with a porn addiction. And so I'm going to discuss the issue. And again, you can use this to help anyone. All right, so the member said, I've had the opportunity lately to counsel a teenage boy struggling with pornography. He is aware of the inappropriate sinful nature of this and has displayed some guilt and remorse. The parents want to be involved in helping him through this. The dad is a stepdad. All right, so that is the initial what he wrote into me but then he asked me four specific questions and these questions will form the template for what i want to share with you question number one what appropriate passages of scripture will resonate with the teenager number two will you provide some parameters i can use to provide help and hope for this family number three should the parents be involved in the counseling And then finally, number four, what steps should I take to help this young man gain freedom from this snare? Now, again, this is episode 439, how to help a teen with a porn problem. And so I am going to work through all four of those questions. Now, I want to answer the first question first, and then I'm going to put the final three questions just in one clump. Okay, and then I will talk about that in just a moment. But but let me at, answer the first question that he asked. He said, "What appropriate scripture passages will resonate with the teenager?" Answer: I have no idea. That's it. That's my answer. I have no idea what scriptures to share with the teen. Why? Because I haven't met him. I don't know nothing. I don't know anything about this teenager. 
And so there is a danger here. And I see this, especially with novice counselors who are, haven't really got their counseling mojo uh, going yet. Uh, they're new. And I, I remember in the early years of my counseling, I wasn't comfortable in my counseling skin and I, I needed crutches. And so as, as much information that I could have before I ever saw this person, it's like, yes, that will, that will give me what I need. And I can go in armed and give them what they need, even though I had not met the person yet. This is one of the problems with what some biblical counselors use a personal data inventory. The PDI is what they call it, the acronym. And I get it. I understand it. I don't use them. I haven't used them. Uh, don't, I don't recommend them for anybody, but I, I get the the desire for some people to want to have a crutch before they go into uh, counseling because they're new at it. And so maybe it would be better to determine if you're qualified at this point to actually do a certain level of counseling. Maybe that is the better question to answer and that you spend time getting your reps working with less complicated cases. You see, the problem with going into counseling uh, with a predetermined agenda, like what he's asking, hey, give me some scriptures that I could use on this teenager, <laughs> and I have it met this teenager. I have no idea who this teenager is. There's a pneumatos in counseling, walking in the spirit. It's kind of what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. And I know this is not the point of the passage, but there's an idea here. There's a concept here about the spirit that when you go into this town and when they take you before the council, don't worry, the spirit of God will give you words to say uh, in that moment. There is a, a Holy Spirit who is active and eliminates our mind and engages us as we are engaging others. And so if you go into counseling with a predetermined scriptures in mind, you may force uh, your scriptures into a unique situation that you have yet to learn. I mean, throughout this episode, 439, I'm going to share verses with you, generally speaking, but regarding the team that you're serving, you have to talk to God first about what scriptures you want to share. And then you want to go in uh, to this counseling session and you want to talk to the teenager asking micro questions and macro questions, extensive questions, intensive questions to learn. And then as you walk in the spirit, God will bring to mind the scriptures that you need and even the questions that you uh, need to ask the person. I, I don't recommend that a person go into a counseling session armed with uh, a list of questions that they're going to ask or armed with a list of scriptures. No, you walk in the spirit. Just go into that counseling session and say, how may I serve you? How may I help you? That is how I start virtually every single counseling session. And then we're off to the races and you just walk in the spirit. You're talking to God. You're interacting with this person and it is just a, a beautiful symmetry, but it will be an asymmetry if you already know what you're going to say. That's kind of like, you know, when you're talking to somebody. And then as they're talking, you're not even listening to them, but you're thinking about what you're going to say. That's not listening. And that's not, that really doesn't make for a good conversation. 
And so here's an analogy for you. I would not want my doctor to predetermine what he would say to me before he ever met me. No, I want him to come in, and he doesn't know me from Adam's house cat. And then he begins asking me a series of questions. And so I I do want you to uh, take this seriously, and I'm sure that you will. Now, there's a couple questions that you have to ask. You know, am I qualified to actually engage this person? Uh, Why is it that I want a list of scriptures that may not even apply to this person, this person that I don't even know? And so there's some questions that you might want to ask there before taking on this counseling case. Otherwise, just go in there and engage this teenager. Ask intensive and extensive micro and macro questions. And then we're always having two conversations going at the same time. You're talking to God. Dear Holy Spirit, eliminate my mind. Run my mind through the index of your word and help me to see scriptures that will be applicable to what he is sharing with me right now. I want to uh, walk in the Spirit and trust you as you guide me. Now, that doesn't mean that you go in there willy-nilly. It doesn't mean that you go in there unqualified. The assumption is you are qualified. You have a broad understanding and a deep understanding of counseling. Specifically, you have engaged addiction-type counseling before. You've also worked with teenagers before. And so what you're dealing with cannot be a blank slate as far as your experience and qualification is concerned. And so if you have done the due diligence over years of training and you have been well immersed in God's word, then you have a database sitting inside your brain. And so now you want to engage the spirit of God and say, shine the light on on what I need to say as I am asking this person these questions. And so question number one, it, it was what appropriate scripture passages will resonate with the teenager. My first answer was, I have no clue, but I am very comfortable with that. Now, again, I wasn't once upon a time. I, I was nervous as a, a, a cat in a room full of rocking chairs, and, and that's the way some counseling is, and so you, counselors are, and so you do want to uh, take this seriously, but I just want counselors to guard against presetting the counseling session before they ever met uh, the person and getting a list of scriptures or having a PDI can be a, a trap in a counseling session. All right, so the final three questions are, will you provide some parameters I can use to provide help and hope for the family? That was question number two. Question number three, should the parents be involved in the counseling? And then question number four, what steps should I take to help this young man gain freedom from this snare? And so for these final three questions, I am going to conflate them and I'm not going to answer them. I won't let you know which ones I'm answering specifically, but as you review the show notes here in episode 439, uh, you will see how all three of those questions will be answered thoroughly with what I'm about to share with you. And so what I have done is I've broken those three questions out into six different categories. The categories are conviction, parents, worship, sin, habits, and 
community. And so those are the six categories that I've broken it out into, and that will answer the three questions that you have asked me. And so let's start with conviction. Here's a rule of thumb. His confession must be more than what you already know or what the parents already know. When a significant sin problem becomes public knowledge, typically the person only confesses what everyone already knows. The, the confession never outpaces or outdistances what everybody knows. However, if there is genuine conviction going on in this person's life, you will sense a teachable spirit wanting to come clean, meaning that he will share more than you already know. In most cases, a person does damage control. And what they're doing is they're, they're filling you out to see what you know. And if what you know is irrefutable, then they will only confess up to that line. That's probably not conviction operative in this individual's heart. That's probably damage control. But if the knowledge line is here and they're truly under conviction, they will not only own what you already know, but in most cases they will tell you stuff that you did not know. And so that's something that you want to look for. You don't want to be cynical or judgmental. I mean, maybe he is telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But in most cases, that's not true. And if there is genuine conviction happening, uh, be ready to hear some things that you didn't know. And so that's one way uh, that you can distinguish if there is true conviction that he really wants to change. Now, part of this process will be distinguished between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And so I want to walk through that very briefly. There are four common aspects of worldly sorrow. And if you see these, like it's really obvious, well, maybe what you have here is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow, meaning that this person is not experiencing true conviction from the Spirit of God. And so here are four common aspects of worldly sorrow. One is self-pity. Now, I know there'll be an elements, there'll be elements of all of this in godly sorrow, okay? And so just put that right at the front. There will, there'll be elements of this in godly sorrow. But, but if most of what you see are these four things, maybe it's not godly sorrow, but it's worldly sorrow. All right, so self-pity. It will sound something like, I can't believe I did this. And so the focus will really be on what they did. You, you'll see a self-centered quality uh, to worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is, is like what David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And so he's more concerned about offending the great his great God than being so inwardly focused that I can't believe I did this, which is self-pity. Now, there will be elements, there will be traces of that in godly sorrow. But if it's just blown out, I can't believe I did this, self-pity, then maybe you're dealing with worldly sorrow. Number two is personal embarrassment. Again, there will be traces in godly sorrow. But it will sound like, what will others think of me? Now, that's, that's classic fear of man, being managed by the opinions of others. Now, what that means is, is that the opinions of other people is greater than the opinion of God, similar to self-pity. Self-pity, well, no, you'll be more concerned about offending God 
rather than thinking about yourself, pity. And then with personal embarrassment, number two, you'll be more concerned about God's opinion of you at this moment, and you want to get right with God rather than being so fixated on what other people think about you, personal embarrassment. And so there's self-pity, there's personal embarrassment. Number three is shameful regret. I will ne never be able to forget what I have done. You, you hear the inwardness to that kind of talk. And then finally, unbelieving guilt. A lot of times you hear it like this, I can't forgive myself. Now that is heretical teaching. And it's also true that there is there could be ignorance here because many Christians, I believe, do not understand the heresy of that statement that I can't forgive myself. It's not their responsibility to forgive them. It is God's responsibility. But if you sense a lot of self-pity, personal embarrassment, shameful regret, unbelieving guilt, I can't forgive myself, then you might be dealing with worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Now, what are some aspects of godly sorrow? I want to share a few of those with you. He will be turning from loathing, self-pity, to longing to experience change that only God can grant. Number two, he'll turn from rejecting God's authority over his life to embracing God's rulership. An addiction to pornography or any other addiction is rejecting what God says is true and doing what I want to do. And so if, he, if it's godly sorrow, then he will be not rejecting God's authority and rulership over his life. Number three, he will turn from bad company to good companions. And so as you delve into this, you're going to see that he has a friend list and a choice list and a preference list, a hobby list, a habit list. And there's going to be a lot of, those are all companions. And for the most part, they'll all be bad companions. But if it's godly sorrow, he's going to be chucking those things and moving away from them, and he's going to be surrounding himself with good companions, a sign of godly sorrow. And so we have done, uh, he's turning from loathing to longing. Uh, he's turned from rejecting God's authority to, to embracing his rulership. He's turned from bad company to good companions, number four. He'll turn from being proud to being humble. And one of the ways that you can test humility is his teachability. You'll also see it, as I was saying earlier, about conviction, if, uh, about his confession. If his confession outdistances what you already know, then that's true conviction. And then that's also a desire to be taught. And then number five, he'll turn from damage control to full disclosure, which is what I have uh, said. Now, there are five examining questions that uh, you want to, you could ask maybe, or paraphrase them depending as you talk to him. But is he longing to change? Now, you want to delve into that and explore that. Is he turning from loathing himself to longing? Is he longing to change? Number two, is he embracing God's authority? Is he pursuing good companions? Is he teachable? And then number five, is he fully disclosing the problem? And so I'm answering your final three questions in six categories. The first category here is conviction. Now, the second category is parents. Teen problems are parenting problems too, but please listen carefully. I'm not accusing, and I'm not saying that the parents are responsible. 
Nobody is responsible for somebody else's sin. When someone chooses to sin, it's all on them. They made the choice. They can't take the victim uh, posture. And parents or whomever uh, should not take responsibility as in, I caused that to happen. There's a difference between causing something to happen and and contributing to it happening. You see, no man is an island, as John Dunn told us. And so it would be disingenuous to suggest that a child can live with parents for 15 years and the parents not affect them for good or evil. And so you have to explore this without an accusation. And so you want to discern how these parents, plus the stepdad, how they have, there's three of them there at least, how these parents have shaped the child. And again, you're not accusing, but you have to turn over every stone, and so you want to examine. You also want to make sure that you don't become the surrogate parent. And so you don't want four parents in this situation. You want to help the child and help the parents. And so your goal here is to hand off the child to the parents. They have a role to play, and maybe you need to rehabilitate how they do their role, but you want them to take responsibility and finish the job that God has called them to do. Now, if there's been a divorce, there's going to be some complications here. But you want to make sure that you don't become the fourth parent. He's gone from dad to mom to stepdad, and now you. And so you don't want to continue that process, but you want to help to rehabilitate the parents. In this case, the mom and the stepdad. And there may be the bio-father situation that there'll be some things to work through there. But you want to make sure that you don't become the surrogate dad to this kid. And so you'll have to equip everybody in this equation so they can do what they're supposed to do as a child who hopefully formally will be addicted uh, to porn. And then parents who may have contributed in some way, even though they did not cause. And so one of the things as you help the parents to uh, rehabilitate uh, you want them to examine themselves first. Now, this is the idea that we see in Matthew 7 about the log in your eye. And that's always a first call to action. Like when our children sin, I want to examine my role and what happened before dealing with what the child did. I know I didn't cause them to sin, but did I contribute in some way? Now, I want to list for you several examples where the parents might have contributed, motivated this child, for him to choose pornography. For example, do they have a romantic home? The child should know what a wholesome relationship looks like from observing his parents. Every child should know what romance looks like, what sexuality looks like, what gender roles looks like, what a wholesome relation looks like by observing the two adults in the room. You see, porn is a fake romance. It is a replacement for the genuine thing. Why is he going for something fake if he has seen the genuine thing portrayed in front of him for a decade and a half? Well, maybe there's a question that we need to ask here. Do the parents have a romantic home? Number two, 
does this home practice instant gratification? You see, porn is just that. It's instant gratification. It circumvents what God says is good by trying to gain good sinfully. Have they spoiled the child? By just giving the child whatever he wants, when he wants, how he wants it, because that is one of the main characteristics of pornography. It is instant gratification. Has he been equipped to be uh, satisfied uh, quickly and promptly whenever he wants, number two? Number three, do they have a communicative home? You see, porn is not that. It's not communication. Porn is not about talking. Porn is about sensuality and arousal. How do the parents talk to each other? Are, are they encouraging, and, and is there laughter, and is there repentance? And it is a full-blown, biblically communicative home. If it's not, then this child would not have a desire. He hasn't had sound biblical communication portrayed for him, which can set up a desire to just use women any way that he wants to because communication, talking, is not required. Do they have a communicative home? Number four, do the parents discourage the child? How have they been an encouragement to him? You see, porn can be a way of making yourself feel better because you live in a, a hostile or critical environment. If you're, if you're always put down, then you're looking for a way to lift yourself up. And if that is the environment of the home, well, typically a child will look for sinful means to find encouragement, to be appreciated, to be liked. Uh, they, they will start dating way too early, get into pornography as, as satisfying themselves, trying to feel good about life because their home environment has been very critical and very hostile to their souls. Do the parents discourage the child, or is there a characterization of encouragement in the home? Again, you're not making an accusation, but you have to turn over every stone. Finally, number five, does this child have a small soul? a small capacity, according to what Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Now, I'm not going to unpack that, but I do have, in fact, I just did, I think a couple weeks ago, an entire podcast on character and capacity issues, and it's linked here in this episode, and so I would just encourage you uh, to uh, listen to that podcast and look at those show notes. Now, we're under the second category of, of parents. I talked about conviction. Now I'm talking about parents. And the final thing that I would want you to address is, is the stepdad. The stepdad. The boy has a stepdad. And so what happened to his bio father? How does the rejection element of losing his bio dad impact him? He had a bio dad. I don't know how old he was when that dad stepped out of the home. Uh, I don't know what their relationship was like, but he had a bio dad. Now he has a replacement father, and I don't mean it in a crass way, but I'm thinking through how a teenager could look at their family dynamic, and it could be negative, and so you have to think through that. And so how does the rejection element of losing his bio dad impact him? And then a more specific question, how do the interchangeable fathers in his life influence how he thinks about God the Father? Now, I have an entire one-hour webinar called the important, roles, uh, uh, the important Role of a Father. 
and it would be very important to uh, watch that webinar because there is a connection between how a kid thinks about his earthly father and as he learns later about God the Father. And if he has an in interchangeable father dynamic in his home as a child, well, that will impact how he thinks about God the Father. Are you here for me? Are you going to stay? Can I trust you? Uh, that can create a lot of insecurity, and it can create a pathway to, to pornography, uh, a way to feel better about yourself. And so we're talking about the parents under category number two. Now, number three is worship. You see, this child has a worship disorder. We worship what we believe in as we move toward that worthy object. We worship what we believe in, and we move toward that worthy object, hoping that it will provide what we desire. He sees porn as the object of his worship. More precisely, it's not pornography. Pornography is... is, is merely the the mechanism that brings what he really craves there's there's something that porn offers him that he desires maybe he feels encouraged or loved or respected or approved or accepted i i don't know james said it this way he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire and then that desire when it's conceived it brings forth sin and sin when it's fully grown it brings forth death. And so the most important question that you'll have to discern is this child's problem with God. He has a deeply rooted theological problem with God because he de deliberately chooses another God, little G-O-D, to give him what he wants rather than trusting the true and living God. And that could also tie into what I was saying earlier about interchangeable fathers affecting how he thinks about God the Father. Can I trust him? Will he be here for me? And so he has a, a little lowercase g-o-d knowing that that will give me what I want, that I feel good through that. I can trust that, but I, I can't trust God the Father. And so ultimately, the big question on the table, this worship disorder, he has a deeply rooted theological problem with God. Now, ultimately, you'll have to trace down to that and get to that heart of unbelief that's motivating him to choose porn behaviorally uh, in his external world. And so category number three is worship. It is a big deal. Number four is sin. In the Bible, there are three ways to overcome sin, amputation, mortification, and limitation. And we see all three of those in the New Testament. Amputation, uh, Matthew 5, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Your hand offends you, cut it off. Now, that is hyperbolic language. Jesus would do that from time to time, hyperbolically, uh, to really punctuate the point. And so what physical behavioral things does he need to amputate that, that's that's motivating him to look at porn, a computer, a laptop, social media, the internet, improper sleep patterns, uh, staying up too late as, he, as his melatonin uh, rises, as he's tricking his body because of the blue light in the uh, computer, his friends, music. There are things here that are behavioral that you can amputate. And then mortification, as we see in Romans 8, he must put to death is what it means. He must put to death, mortify, 
what is happening in his heart. This is a deeper issue, leading back to his worship disorder, his deeply rooted theological problem with God. And then in Hebrews 12, we see limitation. Set aside that thing that hinders us. These are not necessarily sin issues. They could be non-sin issues, but they're sinful to him because they hinder his walk with the Lord. A phone, for example, is not sinful, but it may be for him. It may be a, a instant gratifying portal to worship his lowercase g-o-d. TV, internet, friends, etc. And so as you talk about the sin aspect of this, you want to think through those three things, amputation, mortification, and limitation. And then you want to dig into Paul's template for changing our lives. And that, of course, is in Ephesians 4, 22, 23, and 24. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And so you'll have to get into his former manner of life because it is corrupt and deceitful. Now, there's an assumption here that he's actually a Christian. Now, he may not be a Christian, and so his former manner of life is his life because he's not a believer. And so you'll have to examine those things knowing that they are subjectively discerned, and so you really need the Spirit's help uh, to try to get inside this child's head and, and to help him. You need to get into his mind and, and to learn about those deceitful desires, those corrupted ideas to help him change into a Christ-like person according to Paul's template in Ephesians 4. And that's why one of the reasons that you don't want to go in with a preloaded script of scriptures to give him and you don't even know him. But as you get into his mind and work through some of the things that I've been presenting to you, well, you will build your PDI as you ask some of these questions. You'll know specifically what to focus on and what scriptures will be appropriate to apply here. Address the theater of his mind as you're getting into these deceitful desires where he acts out his cravings for power, for control, for approval, for acceptance. Those could be some of the idols that he is worshiping in his worship disorder. Power, he has power over the women. He can control the women. They are approving him in the theater of his mind. You see, it's all a fantasy. And so he's created this metaverse in his mind, uh, this alternate reality in his mind, which is where our culture wants to live, and pornography is the perfect. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, I'm putting that in air quotes because it is, it is grossly imperfect. But he's creating the perfect metaverse to where he can live in the theater of his mind, where he can feel power and feel control and feel approval and feel acceptance. And that is his worship structure, is these idols. He, he receives these idols through the, uh, through the uh, pornography. And so he's living out of fantasy through the portal of porn. And so that is sin, category number four. Number five, habits. Now, there are two elements to consider with habits. There are things that he can control, meaning that he can walk away from them if he wants to. When a person first starts a sinful, what could be a sinful habituation, they have control over it, and they can walk away from it. 
And so you want to look at his habits, things that he can walk away from. I mentioned some habits earlier, you know, sleep patterns, so forth, and maybe devices or friends or whatever. These are things that he can control. But then there are other habits that he have he has been doing so long. He's habituated in them, and so now they control him. This is what Paul was saying in Galatians 6, 1. It has captured him. And so you will need to discover those trigger points so that he can stay away from those trigger points. Like, I do pornography every time when I'm in this situation, you know, when I'm all alone or when the computer, my door's closed or, or whatever. Well, if those are trigger points to where when that situation happens, then boom, this rolling wave of temptation just covers his soul. And, and now it owns him. And so there's two aspects to habits. The things that he can control, you want to amputate those quickly. The things that he cannot control, you want to work on the mortification side of things while also amputating those trigger points. Don't put yourself in that place to where you're going to be managed by this habituation that you are in. Finally, category number six, community. Now, there are four elements that make up good companions. One, a humble community. He needs a group of folks who care about others more than themselves. Pornography, obviously, is caring about yourself uh, more than others, and that is the opposite of the gospel. He needs a humble community. Number two, he needs a transparent community. He wants friends who want to be honest. They want to walk in humility. A humble community, a transparent community. Number three, a place of lifetime help. Because of the habituations, the mortification issues I was talking about earlier, he must plan to live in the right community long-term even after you discontinue meeting with him. Number three, a place for a lifetime help. You need that kind of community. And then number four, a place to serve others. Because as I've mentioned, porn use is all about serving yourself. He needs a heart that bends towards serving other people and see who he wants a community where he can serve. This is episode 439, How to Help a Teen with a Porn Problem. I would encourage you to go through this. I've given you a lot of data, and so you can play it slow. You can work through it piece by piece, and it will help you not just the porn, the porn problem, as I said, this is a case study. The things that I've shared with you is an excellent template to help anyone working through an addiction. Here's a quick call to action, and then I'll wrap up. Number one, your homework assignment is straightforward. Please find out all the questions that I've asked you regarding this teenager, regarding the parents, regarding the stepdad, regarding his friends, regarding his habits. That's your homework assignment. Discover these things as you talk to this unique child. Number two, Think through an action plan for the teen you, and, and know that you're going to gather more information than, than what I've just presented here as you speak with him, as you speak to them. And so consider what I've said here as a building block for your strategies as you uh, work on a game plan to help unhook him from this snare that has captured him. And then finally, number three, don't try to accomplish all this in a couple of sessions. Be patient. Prioritize what seems most vital right now. Make your plans knowing that you're going to lean into the Spirit and He will direct your path. As we say in our culture today, be ready to pivot. And, and so don't accomplish it all at one time. Just prioritize. Make your plans. God will order your steps. That's why we don't want templates in counseling sessions. We want to be pneumatic 
as we lean into the spirit. And so episode 439, how to help a teenager with a porn problem. Thank you so much. And if you have a question that we can help you with, please ask. It would be a joy uh, to serve you. God bless. Enjoy your coffee. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.